The text this morning is going to be 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, looking at Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel. And if you want to turn there, 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 through 10. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Good morning, Sovereign Grace Aberdeen. It is a great moment to be here with you today. It's always a privilege, and I thank I think the elders Sam, Scott, and Dave for allowing me this privilege. Uh, and almost, it's almost the best Christmas present actually to be able to see your face and, and, even, and even come and feed your hunger and your desire to know God's Word and know God Himself. And so I, I am privileged indeed, so thank you. Uh, I'm excited to be here because uh, we are, again, studying my most favorite text. Because every single time I think that I choose a text, it becomes my favorite. And uh, so I, I have a whole, <laughs> a whole list of favorites now, but, but we'll, have, we'll have time to study first, um, first Samuel and, and the most unlikely hero possible um, because of who she is and where, where she belonged in the storyline of Scripture. And so what we'll see is it taps into a story, and we all love stories, right? It taps into a story of the underdog getting ahead, so to speak. The, the forgotten actually being the one who's remembered. The, the one who has nothing actually receives everything. And we want to celebrate with Hannah with that, but what we'll see as we study and what we'll be surprised by is, is it's actually that God in his character and how he works actually shines all the way through. Because we love when the underdog wins. But it's much more than that. It's much more than that with what we're going to study today. Because we understand what it means to, if you're anything like me, you understand what it means to be an underdog. I, I, um, 
I'm not much of a sportsman, um, and I love shooting basketball, but it hardly ever makes its way in. It only makes it in when it doesn't really matter. Yeah, that's the only time, really. Um, but somehow I still find a way to think that I'm not the underdog. And so I, 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 I think I have this, this talent of having humble pride or being an oxymoron walking around because more of a moron than the oxy part, but... All that to say, this story uh, intersects with my life really well as well, as I can learn <laughs> to not look at my own lack of achievements and think much of them, but see God for who He is. Now, Hannah's story captures the sweet dependence of Yahweh, of her God. She has nothing except for Him. When we look at her story, we'll see that. We team up with her and we want her to see her excel. And when we see, we see God's modus operandi, his way of working, just emerge as he, normally, as he normally does with his saints. He loves to stretch out at the moment of greatest need and show his strength. That's how he works. That's who he is. With Hannah, her situation is particularly dire. Everyone, picture this, everyone that knows Hannah knows that she lacks. In her world, in her culture, children were everything. Now, children are a joy to the Lord, but for us, we have a lot of other distractions, that, and children sometimes become just an ex- distraction. But for Hannah, that was her lifeline. That was her place in society. That was how she was, and this is one thing that we have to recognize. That is how she was going to fit into the storyline of Scripture, because her child could be the seed that would actually rule the world, promised to Abraham. Similar to what Mary was uh, praying for in in the New Testament. Tana understood that. She she wanted to bear a son so that she could actually have that place of honor. It was a good place of honor. But she had no children. She had no children. She... Year after year, year after year, she longed for this, but she had no children. She had nothing. She lacked what she held the most dear in her heart. And in comparison, and often there's always a person beside you who actually has everything. And and for Hannah, that's the exact same thing. Hannah's lesser loved wife had bountiful amounts of children. Like her, her womb was plentiful. Probably every year it seemed like she would bear a child and, and, she made sure that Hannah knew. Look at verse 6 in chapter 1, just for sake of context. And her rival, which would be Elkanah's wife, used to promote her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So not only was it obvious that Hannah was the rejected one, meaning she didn't have any children, Elkanah's wife, Penina, she made sure that Hannah knew that she didn't have any children and that she had all the children they carried on the family name. Currency on the street, and Hannah had nothing. Hannah had nothing. Her heart's desire was never met. It was obvious to her. It was obvious to her household. It was obvious to her friends and neighbors. Everybody knew what she lacked. And it actually consumed her. It distracted her completely. It even stirred her basic desire for food. Verse 7 says this in your Bible. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to pervert her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat because even the appetite for food had passed away. Now, you might want to step in there and say, hey, Hannah, embrace what the Lord has given because 
Yes, he does, you don't have children, but at the same time, you have all these other freedoms. You can focus on other things. And you want to you wanna give her the right Bible verse to make sure that she understands her place of prestige. But Hannah saw right through it. No Bible verse could actually fix her plight. And she knew that she lacked children. It was obvious. Elkanah, her husband, being the husband who wants to remedy the situation and step right in and be the savior of the day, he says in verse 8, Hannah, why do you weep so much? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart so sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And he's trying to console her, but he just shows that he's kind of missing the point. He's missing the point. And so don't Husbands, don't take your cue, your cue from uh, Elkanah here because he kind of doesn't quite get it. But that's not really the point either. She just moves on and she takes her request to the Lord, verse 9, verse 10 rather. She was deeply distressed and praying to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow to say, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to you a servant, a son, your servant, a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. She knew where her source of strength was. She took it to the Lord. For some reason, she, she had no misgivings of going to the Lord. Now, she note that she's from the tribe of Ephraim. And if you go back to the judges, the Ephraimites caused a civil war between the Israelites. And so they were not the favored tribe amongst the people. They actually were kind of, most likely were outsiders. And they, they maybe thought too much highly for, uh, too highly of themselves and that sort of thing. But they, they caused a civil war that, that actually hurt Israel as a whole. And so she comes from that context. And she's going up to the Lord and she's still faithful there. But but she doesn't really have much to, bra uh, to brag about in regards to her family roots. But she still goes before the Lord. And also don't forget that at that time in that place, women's rights weren't as they were today. Uh, she was not a favorite among, her, among men and women. She had her place in society. And so her as a woman to go before the Lord was actually a, a brave thing to do because a lot of times the men stole the show in that regard in her context, but no hesitation from her. She sees herself as equal and rightly so. She goes before the Lord and she takes it to the Lord. She takes her broken heart thinking and knowing and trusting that the Lord wants to hear in spite of her circumstance, in spite of her circumstance. The issue is also that even though there's tension in her home. Her husband doesn't quite understand her. She doesn't have a favorite home and she has her particular place in society that is kind of in one sense suppressing her. The, the political situation in, in Israel wasn't that great either. In fact, the, the religious leaders of the day were very corrupt actually. They were supposed to be the, the ones who led everybody before the Lord in worship, but they were using that as an advantage to uh, feed their own desires. And the, the guy who could do uh, something about that whole thing chose to, uh, chose to not cast an eye on it. He knew about it. He, his very sons were the ones that were doing it. So is Hannah bothered by that? Is Hannah bothered by that? Not so much. 
Not so much. Actually, those very same corrupt people accuse her of drunkenness. And she's praying before the Lord, really concerned, and she's made out to be a crazy woman. A crazy woman. Verse 13. She, well, verse 12, she's continuing to pray, and Eli observes her um, by, the, by the tabernacle. And then Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving. She was praying silently, and the voice was no, not heard. And therefore, uh, Eli took her as a what? As a drunken woman. And you, you all, immediately you see the wisdom of Eli here, because obviously he knows what's going on. He knows how to interpret and see things as they are on the surface but not so much. He assumes that she's drunk, but he's wrong. He's looking at the external, but he doesn't see her heart. You, you wish that he would just kept his voice mouth silent, but, but he, he still speaks up in a very accusing way. And he says in verse 14, how long will you, will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. So he assumes so much by viewing Hannah, he has no idea of her storyline, of where she's coming from, of what's happening, of what's going on. But he knows the answer to her plight. She must be drinking. She must be drinking. So he speaks up and he becomes the fool. He's quick to speak and he is the fool. And sometimes we find ourselves do that as well. We can actually identify with that, where we look at, we judge the book by its cover, and a lot of times we, we can be correct because we can put two and two together and, and uh, all that sort of thing, and we can kind of see how things go, and we make a judgment call. But some, a lot of times we're also wrong, and we, we fit into the shoes of Eli where we play the fool. Hannah has the opportunity to kind of put Eli in his place because she's the one with the true heartache and he has no idea and he proves that he has no idea but look how she responds to him. Very sweet. She corrects him but she doesn't become angry at him. She says, verse 15, but no, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord because she knew that she could and she knew that God didn't judge her motive. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Thankfully, Eli is silenced with that, and he doesn't respond in the way that he had done prior, and he just says in verse 17, go in peace, and the Lord of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. It seems a little bit canned that Eli would speak in this way, but at least he didn't try to, to wax eloquent and try to somehow make the situation better. He just kept it at that and he kept silent. And that's actually good. Hannah responds, takes that as a lifeline, and she goes back home revived. And she says in verse 18, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad because she heard what this, what this individual, this leader in her home or in her in her country had said. And as the story goes, her heart is lifted, she goes home, and she actually becomes pregnant. And she becomes pregnant with, with Samuel, and that's not where the story ends. That's just the beginning of the story. 
That's just the beginning. And what's surprising about this too is as you look at First and Second Samuel as a whole is that this Hannah character, it's at the beginning. But it's really the, truly the, the bookend of the whole story between those two. And what's interesting is that who's the person at the end of Second Samuel? That is the, the lead out of the story, King David. The greatest king that Israel ever had. So Hannah, in her distress and how she responded and how the Lord blessed her and how she trusted the Lord is the beginning of the story. And she really kind of drives the whole storyline forward. And, and she's, the, she's the lead up to the greatest king that ever was. Surprising. Not only is David our favorite story a lot of times because of everything that he accomplished, but now Hannah rises to the forefront because of how she chooses to respond and her faith in Yahweh, in her Yahweh. Her, the backdrop is her faith that we can celebrate here. And if we don't have time to look at David and how he finishes the story, but you can see in chapter 22 and chapter 23 of 2 Samuel, you see how he, not like, not like Hannah where her, her situation happened to her. He actually created the circumstance where he had to go before the Lord and plead his case. And the Lord rescued him, particularly rescued his people from destruction because of the pestilence that had hit him. Because he wanted to, to be seen as strengthened and he counted his numbers. But the Lord answered in mercy and saved him. Here, Hannah, her situation was done to her and she cried out to the Lord and... He listens and he answers and grants her request. What this does, it points out also the central theme in the book. And that's always good to know as we, as we kind of jump into the storyline. It's good to know where we're headed so that we can navigate. Mark this in your Bible. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, when, when Samuel, who is now an, an old man, become, becoming the kingmaker as he is because he's already crowned somebody as king. He's looking for a new king and he finds King David. He looks on the outward appearance with all the sons of Jesse, but the Lord reminds him is that it's not as it is on the outside that, that he cares for. It's who you are on the inside and how you live things out on the inside that matters. It's, here's what he says. Verse Samuel 17, 16, 7. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Men look, looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now Samuel had made Saul king. And we know how that storyline goes. We know that, that Saul was ahead over everybody in, in all of Israel. Like he was the tallest dude. And he knew how to attract uh, and knew how to treat, uh, lead people in battle. He did that, but he didn't know how to obey and submit to the Lord as king. And so obviously the Lord rejected him and needed a new king. And we also know as Samuel went to saw the, see these, uh, these seven sons, he saw the first one, he saw the strength of him, and he said, hey, here's a king on the external, but, he want, but God wanted a man after his own heart. And so it is with Hannah. When... When God chose the one who would bring forth and drive the storyline forward, he chose Hannah because of her faith and because of her heart and how she praised him. So what is it about Hannah that attracted God to look at her? What is it about her? We'll see that emerge in her prayer. 
Because a lot of times when we pray, our theology actually comes to fruition, does it not? Like it's how we pray, what, what comes out when we pray, what we focus on when we pray. And so here's where we see Hannah's heart unfold. What is it about her that caused Yahweh's eyes to pull in and see what's going on? See what's going on. And I have to also add, as we, as we look at this, we have to be really careful here because this is a story. This is a narrative. We can't go and say, okay, this is the rule that I need to live by. Because we can't say, okay, all I need to do is get the right prayer and the Lord will give me exactly what I want. We know that's not how prayer works because the Lord has his ways and he's sovereign over all. And we, don't, we only see part of the picture. We only see our own sliver of reality, just as Hannah did. What we have to do is embrace, we have to be okay to embrace the circumstance and trust the Lord that he will make all things right, but not be afraid to go before him. So that's a principle that we draw from, but it's not the rule that he's going to actually answer exactly the way that we need. We're seeing principles here, not a rule to live by. There's a difference. There's a difference. So, let's look at Hannah and her prayer. Hannah, the sweet, dependent one, her face down before Yahweh, trusting him that he will make all things right. And in this story, he does. Because that's how God works. And he surprises her by his grace and his mercy. Verse 1 of chapter 2, we see the supreme praise go forth. And she, and she reads here and she says here, From her heart, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn or my, 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 my strength is exalted in the Lord. She is a weak one in her, in her current estate. She is weak, but because she's looking and her eyes are on the Lord, her eyes are on Yahweh, and she's using here because the uh, Lord is in capital letters, so she's using this, this endearing covenant, the personal name of Yahweh, so that there's this relationship that she assumes and that she's embracing. My heart exalts in the Lord and my strength, my horn is exalted, lifted up in the Lord. Now we could also say here is that if that her focus was only in herself, it seems here, she says, my heart exalts and my horn is exalted. It seems, it starts with her. And that's okay. She's okay with that. But it ends with, in the Lord. Her focus is her direct object, what she's focusing on, and what has caused her to, to think and be consumed by is the Lord. And even her enemies find their place. She's not distracted by her enemies and the people who, who tend to ping her with her lack of children they find their place in her eyes and in her circumstance because the lord shines through her mouth derides her enemies she says that might seem a little bit weird because we are called to love our enemies are we not that's true but in in the context of all things here and in comparison to the lord what she's saying is that my enemies have their place and they're not going to affect me because the lord is my strength what they say is not my strength and it is not my reality it's the lord that works. And, because, and that's how she finishes in verse 1. Because I rejoice, her choice of joy is in what? Finish it. Is in your, who? Your Yahweh salvation. Her, her joy, her strength, her sustenance, 
her, her caring is rooted in the Lord. It's rooted in the Lord. And so here she's giving the, the greatest, the, the paramount and highest praise because that's where it belongs. And a lot of times in our life, we, we allow our enemies and we allow the people that, that, that seem to know how to get through our, our, um, our armor, so to speak, find their place there. And we forget about the Lord. And it pulls us down. And it pulls our eyes away from the Lord. And our direct object is not the Lord. And pretty soon, it's other people actually sapping us from the ability to praise Him. And Hannah here doesn't allow that. Doesn't allow that. Now, she continues here. There is none holy like the Lord. For there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Now, here's where it directly parallels with what David was saying and also connect that back with with what Mary was praying when we read that, when we were singing praises and before with with Scott and what he was reading that with Mary. And so so like this is a particular theme of all of God's faithful ones where they see God as their rock and as their fortress and he is he is separate from anything that they know. He is set apart, it says here. He is alone in his own category. He's par excellence. Other gods have nothing compared to him. Now, back then, they had gods of wood, hay, and wood and stone that were made of human hands. Today, we have our own gods where they might not necessarily be as visible, but, but it's whatever that distracts us away from who God is and, and devotion to him. And so evaluate in your own life whether or not God has that par excellence place because he knows. He knows your heart. He knows it. He knows whether you are the rock that you seek out or you have a tiny rock in your pocket that you love to pull out anytime you may feel bored or something. Verse 3, talk no more uh, so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth for the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him all actions are weighed. And what she's saying here is that God is omniscient. God knows everything. Here's here's the the most unlikely theologian emerging where Eli should be the one who's teaching the people and and this Ephraimite woman who doesn't have any children, any cloud in society, is the grudem of her day. Seminarians will know what I mean. But she is the theologian. And she gets it right. All of us are good theolo- all of us are theologians. We all have our view of God, but not all of us are good theologians, meaning we might have made God into our own little image versus God shaping us into his image. And we try to define him for who he is when we look in the mirror, but in reality God is is something completely other and he knows your heart. For the Lord is the God of knowledge and by him he knows your actions. And he knows why you do the actions that you do. It's kind of scary. It's kind of scary. But for Hannah, it wasn't a scary thing. It was a point of worship. She wanted that knowledge from him because God was good to her. And that's another thing too is, is Hannah, when, when, uh, when God answers her prayers because she's poured her heart out before the Lord, she knows it's an answer to prayer. Because she actually went to pray and verbalized that prayer. A lot of times we forget to pray. 
And then when life happens and good things actually happen, we haven't taken the time to pray, so we don't see it as an answer to prayer. We just see it as normal life. And so we don't even know how to thank the Lord for the goodness that takes place. So evaluate. Is the goodness in your life something that you see and can observe and say, Lord, thank you, that is from your hand? And does that cause you to shower praises to God? Think about the good things. Even, even the snow, when it's driving across and it slows you down. Well, there's, there's always four-wheel drive, and the Lord has given us the technology. I'm really thankful for that because I'm not a great driver in snow anymore. And so, like, that's a great, that's a great gift. I wasn't thanking him. I just assumed that I could just switch, and then I'd be safe. Yeah. But it was the Lord who was actually keeping me safe and providing that technology so that I actually could make my way. It reframes our thinking. It reframes the goodness that is actually given to us. A lot of times that's what prayer is. It actually recalibrates our thinking to actually see how God actually works because it forces us to slow down. It forces us to slow down. All right. So then we see, see Hannah transition here. In verse 4, we see this full-scale reversal of how, of how she sees God at work. Because remember where Hannah belongs. She belongs in, in the bottom ring of society, a tribe that's not very favored, a place in society that's not very favored. She has no, no clout whatsoever, but she sees the Lord just flipping that on its head. And she's telling us that that's classic Yahweh. That's classic Yahweh. Because she gives us all these examples of how God works and God flips it on its head. Because she's giving us what we may expect may be the currency of this life. But in reality, it's the opposite. Look at verse 4. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble, the ones who lack strength, who are without strength, are bind on strength. Who's the one who receives the care of Yahweh here? <laughs> the strength that is needed, he provides to the one who is lacking, not the one who thinks he has all the strength. Verse 5, those who were full, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. Huh. But those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. Why? Because God has actually filled their, their little tummy with Christmas goodies. Trust me, I had a few of my own. Uh, the barren have born seven. This is a little bit personal for here, but she who has many children is forlorn because the person who actually had many, in her case, found an identity in actually provoking Hannah to, and once Hannah had her children, her joy was gone and she couldn't celebrate anymore. And here, who's the one celebrating? <laughs> Hannah's celebrating. She's not the one who's forlorn. She's praising Yahweh for his goodness and the one who found her identity in the other's lack can't anymore because the Lord flipped it on its head. Verse 6, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. That's all in his hands. He snuffs out life and he gives life. He is central to all of that. He's the one that controls it. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. A lot of times, we think that if I say the right thing, if I do the right thing, this is amongst people. If I say the right thing, if I do the right thing, if I be the right way, if I treat people a certain way, it's tit for tat. People will give me what I want. 
their praises. And they'll lift me up in society, and I'll feel good about myself. And then others will see me, and they'll feel, feel good about me. But here, me is forgotten. He has completely forgotten. The Lord, Yahweh, makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up and exalts. Now, here's not what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm not saying don't go be not kind to people and treat them like they're because what goes around comes around. If you treat people not very nicely, they won't treat you very nicely. So that's not the point. But the point is, understand the source of other people's favor is not them particularly. It is from the Lord. He's the one that grants the favor. And then know to thank him for it and praise him for it. Verse 8. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ashtray, ashtray to make them sit with princes. He's the one that gives the clout to whoever he so desires. He's the one. To make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For what? For the pillars of the Lord, earth are the Lord's, and on them he has rested, he has set the world. That's a good lesson for us to understand as we, as we think we have a democratic voice in our society, is that ultimately, yes, we have a voice, but at the end of the day, we realize, well, trust me, I know this in California, my voice means nothing in California. And, and so, uh, I, uh, thankfully, there's enough red in other states that, that um, our, our politics can still, can still move forward. But all that to say, all that to say is that we, I, my voice, yes, I have a voice, but I don't, I don't lift up a president. I have no, no power in that. I have no power in that. Somehow, collectively, uh, the person becomes president as the president as much as we like him or how mixed of a bag they are. Uh, we just have to accept him and learn to see that it is from the Lord. When, when Cyrus ruled Israel, or when Saul, let's look at Saul in, in 1 Samuel. Saul ruled Israel because they wanted a king like him. He, they wanted somebody who could lead him into battle and who was strong and proud. And they got that. They got exactly what they asked for. God provided for them to show them a lesson. And he ultimately, there was regret that he actually became king to rule his people. But it was no accident that he was king. So it is in our day. When we receive a president that we may not like or that we may not, don't, not like. Yes, we have a voice, but at the same time, um, we can only say so much. And at the end of the day, when the president is the president and when the government is the government, we have to, as believers, understand that it is from the Lord. It is from the Lord. There's a balance that we have to strive for. It is from the Lord. He directs those matters. Think of David and Goliath. David was nothing. Goliath had everything. Go, to, go read his description. <laughs> He's a pretty powerful dude. And David is nothing. He's killed a bear. But, but um, Goliath, we know, as we know from our flannel graph, is that he is really, he's twice as tall as David. But the Lord flips it on its head. Okay? And Goliath doesn't have a chance. Saul and David, they fight each other all the way through 1 Samuel. Right? And who wins in the end? Saul loses 
any kind of ear, any kind of listening ear from Yahweh, and ultimately takes his own life, which is such a sad tragedy. And David is the one who consistently has the ear of the Lord, and he earns the Lord's favor. He has the Lord's favor. David and his older brothers. David was the forgotten one. And his brothers were the ones who actually went in battle. They were the ones that were trained. Eli, his sons, who had the position and the power, and Samuel. Think about how Samuel was for him to grow up in the, in the presence of the Lord. And the Lord called out to Samuel when there was silence. Eli never heard that. He received the favored position. Absalom, Adonijah, Sol- Sa- Solomon. All of them had their lack, and then God lifted up who he wanted to lift up. And look at our very own story, Hannah and Penina. Penina lost out in the end because she didn't see that Yahweh was at the source of it all. She thought that somehow her womb was her very own blessing. Oh, how that, that, does, that all fits together with that central theme of the Lord looks at the heart and he works it however he desires. And what our, what our, what our calling is, is to see that and to praise him. So the question is, if the Lord looked at your heart, would he see what he wants to see? Would his eyes be drawn to the life that you have there? Or would there be a lack of life? Would there be a lack of life? Because there's another reality coming and Hannah goes there. And this is, this is something that should cause us to pause and, and even tremble. Verse 9, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones. Who are the faithful ones? The ones like Hannah, the ones that can sing praises to Hannah, to God. The ones that see God for how he works. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail, it says. The faithful ones, as we, as we have to move forward, the faithful ones are the ones who, who uh, see God for who He is. God who is, who is going to judge both the living and the dead. And we understand as believers now as we celebrate Christmas that, that Christ is the means for us to understand that He's everything that we need and have. It's through Him that we can actually be seen as faithful ones. If we see him for who he is and we confess him for who he is, the Lord sees that confession and changes our heart and then we become faithful ones because of Christ. But the ones who are adversaries, namely the ones in New Testament realities, reject Christ, will what? Verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord of Yahweh shall be broken to pieces. So, the surprise of God's goodness is, is a surprise only to some, not to all. Not to all. There's adversaries that are against the Lord. Yes, they may be against us, but that's only just a small sliver of the story. Ultimately, the adversary is against the Lord and their end will come. And against them, he will thunder in heaven. This graphic reality, go back to Exodus and the fear that the Israelites faced when they saw Yahweh on the mountain. So will it be for the adversaries. You do not want to be an adversary of the Lord. And if you think that you are, I pray that you would take the time 
Speak to Dave, speak to Scott, speak to uh, a member of this church and ask them, I don't want to be an adversary. I want to know and be a faithful one in Jesus. Talk to them today. And as you, and as you do, just know this, is that the Lord wants to see you as a faithful one, but He will one day judge you as an adversary because now is the time for you to see your folly, to see your sin and turn from it and turn to the most faithful one that He has provided, namely Christ, and to embrace Him. Because, verse 10, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Now connect that back with with a few verses prior when Hannah's theology was coming out and that he knows all things. In verse, what is it? Where is it now? In verse 3, for the Lord is the God of knowledge. He'll take that knowledge and apply it to his knowledge of the earth and all the wrong that is done there. So we may think that we can go and make all things right somehow in our own strength, but our strength is feeble compared to the Lord. Trust in Him that He'll make all things right. And the crazy thing is, that'll, that'll set your, that will stabilize your path as the adversaries come. Because ultimately, they're not sinning against you, they're sinning against the Lord. But note on how Hannah ends here. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn or the the power of his anointed. She's being particular here. Now, what's happened here in the Old Testament, and we can summarize all the Old Testament as, as God's promise made to God's people. And what Hannah gets here as the faithful one, she understands that God has made a promise. All the way back in Genesis 3, that that someone will come and crush the adversary of the Lord, the serpent of the Lord. And here, what she's saying is she understands that because she's looking forward to this future king, this king that she wants to be a part in providing as being a mom to him somehow in the lineage. But she understands that this future king will one day rule. And she knows, she knows what was promised to Abraham. She knows what was promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and that refrain that we see, that that through Abraham, all the, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. She understands that. She knows that. And, and it's not as clear here as it is for Mary when she holds baby Jesus in her arms. But what she, her expectation is pointing there. And so what she's longing for is for that king to rule. Because that ultimately what, what is giving her hope. Because she knows, uh, she knows enough to know that that the Lord will keep his promise. And, but we know, as the storyline goes, that, that David is not that king as perfect as he was. Solomon isn't that king as wise as he was. And none of the, none of the people that followed, none of the kings that followed after David and Solomon were that king as faithful or not as they were. She understands that God has kept a prom, made a promise, and he's going to keep it. And so, so her hope is in this future King Jesus. The, the King Jesus that was killed the first time he came, but he will come back to rule. And that's what she's longing for. That's what she's longing for. But you might also ask, well, okay, so, yeah, it's great that Hannah, the story ends well. Hannah's praising the Lord. She had her son. Actually, she had a few more, few more children. 
And the Lord didn't keep her womb uh, closed after Samuel. He gave her more children because she consecrated him to the Lord. And he grew in, in favor with both God and man before the Lord at, at the tabernacle. But that's, it's a great story. But what's, what's the big deal? The walk away that we can see as Hannah, as Hannah lives out her faith before God in response to the goodness that God has given her and the surprise that she senses is that those minor times when the Lord pulls us out of our despondency and out of our despair and puts us on the rock that he provides, those, those, those simple things, those simple things in life that, that shine forth as hope for the future restoration. They're promises. They're promises that God will completely restore this life and what we have and who we are. Read Romans 8, in the middle of Romans 8, how God is going to make all things right and He's going to renew everything. So when things go right for you, when God blesses you, or even when God keeps something back and you recognize that He's keeping it back, is that ultimately salvation is going to be brought about and those little, little salvations that he brings now, those little victories that he brings now are something that you ought to be looking forward in the future. Because the temptation is, is that because the good things are so good that we get distracted by the signs and we don't see them as signs and, 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 and signposts to some future glory. We forget about the future glory and we forget about we live in the here and now. But the reality is, is they're just down payments for that future salvation that is going to be incredible. And so for you, Christian, think about the future salvation and, and see your life in light of that as it, as it speeds onward for that future complete restoration in Christ. Maybe in your, in your reading, once or twice a month, go to Revelation 22 so you know the end of the story and you know how God is going to end it. You know how God is going to end it. So that every single time the goodness of the Lord is a surprise to you, but it's not just a surprise, it, and it, but it becomes a sign for you that God is speeding all of history and what it all is to a future culmination and hope in Him. And so then you can, you can, you can hear what Jesus is saying in, in Luke 12.32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your good's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He, want, he desires to protect you, console you, encourage you, and pull you along. He wants to give you those victories. He does. But a lot of times it's those little victories that become the main thing for us. And we don't see the God working behind us, so he even may remove that. So see them as mini salvations that point towards the great culmination of the future. So be like Hannah in that regard. Be like Hannah. Now another thing too is, is um, as we look at her circumstance, Hannah, Hannah had a lot to thank Panina for. Because without Panina, she wouldn't have had the despair. So shouldn't we thank Panina somehow for what Panina did? And I would say no. She doesn't deserve it. Because she wasn't very nice. And so don't give her the praise. So don't try to be the Panina because that would be <laughs> antithetical to everything. Because don't try to be the adversary. 
We don't owe anything to Benina because she was a horrible individual. She's the backdrop for the Hannah, so we see the diamond that Hannah is. But ultimately, what it comes down to, as you, as you think about Hannah, and even as you think about the, the new year, and as you think about re, uh, re infusing life into your devotion, hear First Peter 5, 7, as he says, cast all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you, Christian. He cares for you. So be invited. Allow yourself to be invited to go to God. Verbalize your concern as Hannah did in chapter 1. And then don't forget to sing his praises as she did in, in, in the second chapter. To sing of his excellencies. To see him for who he is. And to be surprised by his goodness if he chooses to bless you. Because he is good all around. Because ultimately, no matter what, you'll be able to find that blessing. You'll be able to find it because he's already blessing you probably 10,000 times over. 10,000 times over. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we are dependent upon you. Um, and a lot of times we lack the vision and we lack the insight to see your goodness and your care. But Father, you, you work mightily in a, mil, in a thousand different ways that we don't even see. And we only see what's in front of us, but yet there's so many different uh, storylines that happen with the people around us that a lot of times we just see our own. And so Father, I pray that you will grant us the strength to see your work and your handiwork uh, amongst us. And not only that, that we, you would grant us the vision for the future, that our expectation would not just lie in and what's happening tomorrow and next year, but, but what's happening when your history, your story culminates in, in King, when we see King J Jesus face to face. And so, Father, I pray that that would be our pull, that uh, our life would be marked by that. And I pray, too, that as, as there may be some here that, that may not know him as king, Father, I pray that you would open up their eyes as only you can, and by your spirit that you would infuse your vision within them. And that you would grant them a new heart and cause them to walk in your ways. Just as you did for us as who are faithful ones. But Father, us who are faithful ones are dependent upon you each and every day. And we need you to cast, to draw our eyes to you. And I pray you would do so today, tomorrow, and, and into the next year. Because Father, you are mighty. And you do amazing things. And you surprise us in your goodness. We just need to be, we just need the eyes to see. And we pray for those. In your son's precious name. Amen.